All right, welcome to episode 52 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Her name is Rachel Atchison. She's the deputy strategist for Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. She works on nutrition initiatives, healthy eating resources for individuals, and municipal support for urban agriculture. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Carpe diem was uh, something that I was maybe going to get tattooed when I was thinking about tattoos. So it was oh. being on Seize the Day podcast makes a lot of sense for me. So excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. And so obviously, as kind of our audience already knows, that we started doing what's called the How to Live a Good Life series. Mm -hmm. So we focused on various philosophies of life and various ways that people can actualize meaning or a sense of purpose in their lives. And so today we want to focus with Rachel on the idea or the sort of broad kind of ideology of effective altruism. And so our first question, Rachel, is going to be, what is effective altruism and what are its principles? So effective altruism is a movement where we are trying to maximize the good that's done in the world. Mm. And whether that be by you donating a certain percentage of your salary to make sure to effective charities, making sure your dollar goes the farthest, or whether you're trying to maximize your impact in your career. So whether you are trying to focus on one of three cause areas that the movement has kind of tuned into, um, one is global poverty, the second is animal welfare, and the third is existential risk. Um, and so for my work um, previously in the mayor's office as his animal welfare liaison and previously uh, working at the Humane League, I focused on farm animal welfare where we're able to do a lot of good uh, for, uh, for a large number of animals um, because of how, how poorly we treat animals now. So the general gist is trying to maximize impact. Yeah, um, actually, I read in your bio that um, as the animal welfare liaison, um, uh, so you worked on numerous initiatives, which included the banning of wild animals in the circus and a meatless Monday pilot for Brooklyn mm -hmm. Public Schools. Yeah. Um, oh, what is that meatless Monday pilot? So um, Meatless Monday is an international movement trying to get people to reduce their meat consumption by going meat-free one day a week. It is a very simple ask, so it's not something that, you know, if you ask someone to go vegan tomorrow, that might be a little daunting, but if you ask them to participate in Meatless Monday, it's one day out of the week. Everyone can, you know, eat a veggie burger once a week. Uh, everyone can uh, try a new recipe once a week, um, and that's kind of what it's, what it's trying to do, trying to teach people how easy it is to eat better for themselves, the planet, and the animals. That's smart because you, you're kind of baby stepping them into exactly. maybe accepting that kind of viewpoint. That's pretty cool. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, most yeah. definitely. Yeah, it's a foot in the door approach for sure. Uh-huh. And so in terms of effective altruism, it also seems like a bit like, um, so it seems like the utilitarian philosophy where you're trying to maximize the most good for obviously the most amount of people. And so I would wonder then, how do you guys kind of calculate it, right? How do you figure out how to maximize, I guess, for lack of a better term, happiness or to maximize kind of goodwill? So I'll give you an example that, that the movement has, has kind of gives as an intro. Uh, let's say we're trying to maximize impact uh, for, for folks who are blind. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple different charities out there that can uh, try and, and reduce the suffering um, in, in that sphere. Uh, one is the like seeing eye dog, um, uh, I'm gonna butcher this, but not the association of seeing eye dogs, but something like a seeing eye dog uh, support nonprofit. 
Mm. So to train and feed and house a seeing eye dog, it costs roughly $50,000 for the, the course uh, of that dog's life. Now, mm. if you ask someone who's blind, how does that, uh, how, how does that investment into that seeing eye dog, how does it um, uh, serve that person? They're going to say, that makes the world of difference to me. Um, having a seeing eye dog has helped me be able to get out in the community in ways I wasn't able to before I got that seeing eye dog. You know, it makes a very big impact to that one person. Alternatively, halfway around the, uh, around the world, there's a strand of blindness that can actually be cured with a shot. Um, hmm. So uh, it costs a couple hundred dollars to get that shot. And then that particular strand, that blindness disappears. Mm -hmm. So for the same amount of money as a $50,000 seeing eye dog, I can purchase, you know, a couple hundred shots. Now, when you do that calculation, this is obviously very oversimplifying it, and it's not, um, it's not usually this simple, uh, the calculation. But if you look at that calculation, which one would, would you do? Would you help one person get that eye dog, or would you try and, and actually reverse people's blindness, uh, several hundred people's blindness? Yeah, the shots, so, of course. Yeah. And so, so that's, that's the, and I, I say, you know, this was he with hesitancy, like that is the oversimplification of, of maximizing impact is if we know that we can do something effectively with less money and have it go farther. Um, and that's largely why the effective altruism movement for the, from the global poverty perspective uh, puts money into communities where the, the U.S. dollar goes very far. Um, so a lot of the charities such as the Against Malaria Foundation or uh, the oh, uh, schistosomiasis, um, you know, things that are not sexy, like these, these are, you know, donating to buy malaria bed nets is not necessarily a sexy charity to donate to, but it can indeed spare a lot of people's lives. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is interested in that against malaria and then other uh, diseases. Mm -hmm. And then since they started their foundation, I believe they've already saved millions of lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. And they're, they're examples of uh, effective altruists, right? If we, if we had to think of somebody in the yeah. public sphere. Yeah, for sure. And, and they, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to be an effective altruist uh, or be put in the category of effective altruism when you have as much money as they do. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of their charities are not as effective as, as some of them, uh, but because they have so much wealth, they are able to sprinkle it uh, throughout. But uh, indeed, they, they definitely um, align themselves with the effective altruism movement uh, in several of their charitable um, donations. So um, for you, why the interest in, in uh, animals or, or rather, um, or for example, like the Meatless Monday pilot, is that, um, what does that serve exactly? So, so the interest in animals comes, and it's actually, it's pretty funny because I'm not actually an animal person. <laughs> that is weird. Uh, <laughs> but from a numbers perspective, uh, they, so there's three, there's three kind of reasons why I look um, at animals in, in such a favorable light to, to spend my time thinking about them. Um, one is the scale. 
the scale of the problem with how we treat farm animals is tremendous. So the right now there are about 56 billion land animals that we raise and kill each year, uh, just land animals um, in the world. Mm -hmm. And those animals are not the animals that you think of that are out in the fields and they're having a good life. No, these, these are animals that are treated pretty badly. Um, they're animals that are confined in cages. Uh, usually, you know, you can have a farm that has 100,000 birds, no problem, uh, and only in a few sheds. I mean, the, the, the way that they are, are treated um, is just not, <laughs> not great. Uh, so one is the scale, and uh, the scale is very large, 56 billion each year. Uh, that is a big problem. But two is the neglectedness. So right now we don't think about farm animal welfare. Uh, as someone who grew up in a city, I never saw a farm animal till I was over 18. Um, it's just not, um, it's, it was not part of my life. Uh, and the, I, I did not think that an animal coming to me at the, in the butcher section of the grocery store, I didn't think that that was an animal. I just thought, oh, that's, that's meat. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but indeed, the way that that animal gets to the butcher section uh, of a grocery store is really not, not the prettiest sight. Uh, there's that phrase, if slaughterhouses had glass walls, we'd all be vegetarian. There's definitely something, something to that. Um, so the neglectedness of the problem is one where when we think of animal protection, people think of companion animals. They think of dogs and cats. Uh, they might think of wildlife but they really don't think about the fish that we're eating, the chickens that are laying our eggs, uh, the, the dairy cow, the veal calf. You know, that's just not in the mainstream animal protection movement. Those just aren't like sexy animals to be, to be trying to advocate for. Um, it's just not, not, not there. So two is the neglectedness and third is the tractability. So is this a problem that we can solve? Uh, and I'd say that this is a pretty significant uh, one everyone eats. Um, so it is indeed a problem that people interface with three times a day. Yeah. And there are simple ways that we could make farm animals' lives more, uh, more meaningful. One is by um, moving away from intense confinement. So right now there's a, a huge movement going on across the world moving to cage-free eggs, for instance, moving from battery cages to cage-free. And that has definitely done an enormous amount of good for those, those hens. Um, so third is, is the tractability of this movement. I mean, there are things like Meatless Monday. There are things like flexitarianism and vegetarianism and people actively reducing their meat consumption. Um, two is uh, the innovation that that we have uh, with plant-based meat substitutes, for instance. Um, we've got things like Beyond Meat and Impossible Whoppers now in Burger King. I mean, there's just, there's so much innovation. Um, and so there's, there's just a lot, a, a lot there in terms of the tractability. So one is, is the scale of the problem, two is the neglectedness, and three is the tractability. And, and that's why I have definitely uh, fallen in love with, with looking at farm animal welfare as, as a cause area that I invest, invest my time in. That's right. Right. Um, uh, also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a lot of animals are injected with different hormones, uh, fed diets that they're not normally fed, they're not supposed to have. Like, for example, uh, as opposed to like um, a 
corn fed, they should be grass fed. And then also the nutrients in the grass are very important. And uh, there's this idea of um, you are what you eat ate, mm -hmm. which is basically whatever they ate is what you're taking in when you consume them. Yeah. And if they're getting filled with all this bad stuff, to put it simply, then that's what your body's gonna be made up of. And who knows what kind of longstanding consequences that can have. Right. It's, so it's this, not is, this is also an interesting time to talk about this because COVID-19 has definitely uh, taken up a lot of, uh, a lot of the airwaves. Um, yeah. And where do global pandemics stem from? Stems from our, our relationship with animals. Uh, the the wet market in Wuhan that that Corona came from is not all that different from the factory farms that we have here in the United States. Uh, it's close confinement. You know, talk about the opposite of social distancing. Uh, it's close confinement, uh, and it's uh, the the kind of dirty conditions that we have these animals in. Um, you know, having animals um, literally shit on top of other animals, um, you know, that is, that's a norm in our food supply. Uh, and so the fact that it came from this one wet market, in a year we could have another pandemic come from, you know, a hog operation down in North Carolina. It's not, it's not out of this, uh, out of uh, the realm of possibility. Right, wow. And so, I mean, uh, what's really commendable for me in terms of like, obviously you guys effective altruists is that a lot of times what people like, what most of us kind of do when it comes to charity work is like we pretty much sign checks and we give them to, you know, whatever charity is sort of the popular one. If we even go that far. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's like the norm for people when it comes to charity work. But um, what I loved about it is just when I kind of read it on my own and obviously Alan too, is that what's so cool about effective altruism is that sort of dedication and the time as you guys put into like literally considering what's actually the most beneficial charity or what's sort of the most beneficial work that you could be doing. Right. Whereas like, right. And whereas like for a lot of us, our thinking is just like, well, if we give away a little bit of money or even a little bit of time to something that seems like it's a need, right? Then we could kind of go about our daily lives. Mm -hmm. But effective altruism as a philosophy of life is so like, it's so kind of, I guess, radical and so cool because like the people actually embody the philosophy so charity work is not just something that you guys do every here and there but it's literally a way of life and so yeah. Rachel can you speak to us about that like what's it been like for you to actually be an, ex an effective altruist in the sense of like having it as a meaning of life well so and I, I do want to stop and flag the uh, the time investment that it takes to be an effective altruism uh, be an effective altruist I will say it's not necessarily that I myself am digging into the charities you know every last dollar and how they spent it but I'm looking at kind of those charity navigator sort of groups and saying um, so for instance I, I look at uh, what used to be called effective uh, animal activism uh, is uh, now called animal charity evaluators um, so animal charity evaluators they are the nonprofit that I look to, to say, who should I donate to? Um, I myself don't have the time to approach a ton of these nonprofits and say, hey, who out of you is doing the most good? Um, I instead put that kind of responsibility onto uh, animal charity evaluators, and I donate a little bit to them as well, um, just to make sure that, that they can keep up their operations. Uh, and 
they then rank charities. So they've got, um, uh, they've, they've got a very long list of the charities that they send out questionnaires to, they have interviews with. I mean, they are extremely rigorous. And the, uh, I think they come out usually around Giving Tuesday back in December. Uh, and whenever they do, it's actually a, it's a total nerd moment and nerd <laughs> affair when it's like, okay, who this year is going to be the most effective charity? Um, because indeed, it's not, not as if um, the ch charities that uh, are on the list this year, they might not be on the list next year because it's not just about are they effective, but it's also about is right now, is there a need for that financial investment? Because sometimes there might be a charity that, uh, you know, they, they are constricted because uh, um, of staff or they're constricted for X, Y, and Z. Um, and so they might uh, indeed not be the most effective charity to donate to this year, but animal charity evaluators will say, you know, this does not mean that in 12 months they, they'll be at the exact same spot. Um, so I just wanted to, to take a moment and flag that it's not necessarily my time that I've invested to making sure that X, Y, or Z charity is, is most effective. Indeed, I kind of outsource that to a group that is literally their mission is to tell me who is the most effective charity to donate to. Gotcha. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, uh, in terms of, I guess, your, your question though about, um, you know, what mm -hmm. is it like to have yeah, this be um, kind of uh, my purpose and um, meaning in life. Uh, yeah, it's effective altruism has given me a new lens to view life through um, and kind of maximizing the amount of good um, is just now second nature. Just trying to figure out how to do the most good because we all have a limited amount of time on this planet, limited resources. And um, this there's, there's a lot that needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, brought you to that level of thinking like what what inspired you to kind of go down this path? So a couple things one is the community the effective altruism community is is beautiful It's a, a wonderful community full of nerds. I absolutely <laughs> adore them. Uh, they're just like me uh, But I I love them to death. So one is just the the people um, in it have really gotten me to, to think critically about um, where I'm spending my time, how I'm spending my money, et cetera. Um, so I was a part of starting the Philadelphia Effective Altruism chapter, uh, and then the Washington DC Effective Altruism chapter, and then I, I just attend the New York City Effective Altruism events that are now, we've got a lot of virtual events going on, et cetera. Um, but uh, I'd say the level of thinking, it becomes a little second nature when you start adjusting some of your, your behaviors. So for instance, um, I was never a big consumer, but um, effective altruism has really led me to become more of a minimalist um, because it makes me a uh, happier person to not be kind of bogged down with a lot of uh, items. And then it also allows me to donate more. Um, so I myself donate 10% uh, of my salary. And this past year, I was lucky enough to um, donate, I think I was up to like 17% of my salary, wow. um, which was, yeah, I was really, really excited when I was able to do the calculation at the end of the year, like, oh, how much did I end up donating? Because it kind of changes uh, month to month, but it always stays at the at least 10% because I, I signed a, a pledge called the Giving What We Can Pledge. Yeah. Um, yeah.
That's really awesome. And so yeah. what, I, what I even sometimes find in like, um, and I'm sure you guys find this too, and sort of in my clinical work where as kind of as human beings, we all have the need to be sort of special or important in some sense, right? I don't necessarily mean on a grand scale, but I just mean important to other people. And so sometimes kind of people pursue it in a way where they think, where well, if I spend money on things like, let's say, cars, you know, houses, um, like kind of lavish luxuries or accessories, then in that sense, I could reach a level of status that'll make me happy. Unfortunately, what happens is people kind of understand some somewhere down the line, usually, right, right, with the Hadana treadmill, right. that essentially, okay. yeah, yeah, so that it's usually, it's never enough. And it's like, even if they enjoy it for a quick second, right, eventually they need more and they need to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. And so what I love about effective altruism is that for you guys, you kind of see the bigger picture and you see that it's not so much about having money, but it's literally about spending money in a positive way. So it's like in spending on other people, what you realize you're also giving to yourself in return oh. because, right. Yeah, because in some way that you guys are super important in your communities. And it's like not only in the communities of effective altruists, but just in the broader community of, let's say, even the farm animals, right? The people who work in these farms. Um, if, let's say, you're donating to particular charities, those people are really grateful for your work. And so what's so cool about that is like you guys have kind of found the meaning of life, I guess. Um, if there were an objective meaning of life, I guess, based on science, what we see is that well-being is pretty much being intertwined within your community and being an important member of it. Yeah. And so it's literally about how you spend your money because I know sometimes people would think like why would anybody want to be a minimalist that doesn't make any sense like if you've earned this money why wouldn't you want to spend it on luxuries but for you guys you're like but it doesn't make us happy and if you kind of kind of go down the line you'll actually see that it's not going to make you happy either and so was that kind of your experience too when you were sort of starting out as an altruist yeah so I mean one uh, kind of to take a step back even a few years prior to discovering effective altruism uh, about 10 years ago I was diagnosed with clinical depression and I have been suffering with it for, for the past 10 years. And, uh, you know, there's ups and downs. And thankfully, right now, I'm at a, a pretty good place with it. Um, but it, it can spring up uh, kind of unexpectedly sometimes. But I'd say my pivot to uh, both minimalism to effective altruism um, has definitely, in some way, it's kind of saved me um, to... Um, to kind of put it in a dramatic way like that, um, it has given me more meaning to my life uh, because it's not now, it's not just about me, it's about, uh, you know, how can I maximize the amount of good I'm doing for, you know, the billions of farm animals that are out there right now. Um, and uh, so, I'd say I'd say it has given me uh, new perspective um, and new joy um, that I'm very very grateful to have found. And the the community is also super helpful because again, just to to be able to talk with people who also think this way and who um, you know will push me of hey you know did you see the charity recommendation turned from this charity to this charity you know how can we um, how can we pivot some of our donations? You know, that also kind of gives me life and, and uh, gives me more, more purpose. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, it's interesting the, the bigger the purpose or the bigger the goal, it tends to create these personal boundaries against the things that would get you before in your, in, de in depression, at least, at least in my case, yeah. a lot of things that would bother me or that I'd be reactive to, as soon as I had a bigger picture goal that I was working towards, those things didn't seem to bother me as much. They were still there kind of in the background, but having that goal kind of takes that away. Right. Yeah. 
And, you know, we had Scott Barry Kaufman on a few weeks ago. So he's pretty much, he's a researcher. Yeah. So do you know him? I know him. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, so, oh, that's cool. What? Maybe oh, that's wow. the person who told you about it. You know, it's funny. I'm still trying to remember. I don't think it's that, but I, I should, I should reach out to him. Oh, that's really cool. So that's yeah. So, and we were talking about pretty much like, um, so, okay. So just for our audience, in case they didn't see the episode. So he's a researcher into well-being and kind of like self-actualization and transcendence and how do you become the best version of yourself. And so we had a conversation with him about depression. So him and I come from, let's say different perspectives, but they reach similar conclusions. So from his research, what he found is that like these people who, um, so people who are pretty much more individualistic and just mainly focused on kind of self-actualization in the sense of, uh, let's say, I want to become the best version of myself. They were nowhere near as happy as the people who were interested in self-transcendence, right? And sort of going beyond. And so I find that a lot in my clinical work, something very similar, where people tend to think that if I try to become better than everybody else, if I sort of kind of overstep them, then I'll be happy. And I mean, it's kind of a cliche for a reason that it's lonely at the top, right? So people kind of tend to find out that even if they do get to the pinnacle of wherever, right, career, you name it. So they actually are way more lonely and way more unhappy. So it's like this thing that you think is going to sort of ease your suffering and ease your depression actually contributes to it in a significant way in the long run. And so with effective, altrui- with effective altruism and kind of obviously for Scott's work and my clinical work, what we see is that it's actually the community and sort of not being important in the sense of being better than, but being important in the sense of being necessary or a necessity in your community. That's the sort of pinnacle of happiness. If you can get to that point, literally that is sort of, there's an inverse and a negative correlation. It's like the happier you are, or rather, um, the more sort of intertwined you are with your community, kind of like, let's say, the less sad you are. So it's like mm-hmm. depressive symptoms tend to be kind of negatively correlated with a person who feels like they, they're a significant part of their community and that people actually rely on and depend on them. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. And is that the way you kind of felt? I mean, if you're okay with talking about kind of your depression and your symptoms. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm actually very, very open about talking with my depression. I, I feel like it is helpful to be be open about it. Uh, it's helpful to be just have an honest conversation because so many people struggle with depression, uh, and and I think kind of hiding it um, just isn't. It, it doesn't kind of move the conversation forward. Um, so yeah, I'm very very open to talking about it. Um, and yeah, I'd say my effective altruism has definitely given me um, more purpose and and direct. And I'm, I am so, so grateful, so grateful to have found it. Yeah. And it's like, and with depression, a lot of times what happens is people get kind of stuck in this narrow way of thinking where they only, well, I mean, they, I don't want to say only, but they for the majority, they kind of think about sort of how do I improve myself, right? How do I kind of make myself feel better about myself? And unfortunately, sort of the way kind of capitalism is structured, right? It gives you a lot of options, right? You buy this, buy that, achieve this, sort of do that. And the idea is like, they again, kind of go back to that treadmill thinking that that's the thing that's going to make them happy only to find a void in the end. And so it's like when it comes to effective altruism, it's like the the sort of like, how can I kind of put this? So it's like the purpose and the energy invested in this thing that in the end is going to kind of like, it doesn't only exceed you, but in the end is going to sort of be there kind of long after you're gone. What kind of existential therapy and psychology kind of a philosophy called rippling, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you guys kind of ripple out into the world. So it's not as though like I achieved this thing and then when I pass away, nobody's going to really care, right? But it's like literally this thing that I've achieved, hopefully in some way kind of ripples on, whether it's whether, whether through my teachings, whether through even the investments 
that I've made in these different charities. Somebody's going to kind of pick that up and sort of take it elsewhere and move it further along. So it kind of makes us feel like we're part of this global community. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, like, for example, like us, when we're having this conversation and the audience, when they're watching it, the, the whole point of why we do the podcast is also to engage in that rippling effect. Maybe we talk about nuanced thinking. Maybe we talk about critical thinking. Maybe we talk about, uh, as right now, effective right, well, yeah. right? So this way people can know about this stuff because a lot of the most essential knowledge is not yet widely accessible, right? And even though there are, it's starting to be like a lot of different people, like you, talk, you look at uh, Sam Harris, Rogan, or other, other podcasts, you know, and not even just podcasts, there are other lines of business that are interested in getting out certain ways of thinking. But just being part of that, and then maybe, maybe somebody will be inspired to think a new way, have a new perspective, maybe try to understand somebody else in a way that they didn't try before. Maybe they'll take their attention off the, the little me, you know, and right. my concerns, right? Right. And, and yeah, and uh, in that sense, like, I, I mean, I don't know if you see it this way, uh, but I would say in a sense, like, we're also kind of practicing effective altruism. But maybe, I'm not sure though, uh, because is, does it necessarily have to do with uh, money? Um, so, so you don't necessarily, there, there are different aspects of the effective altruism movement. So for instance, like I signed the Giving What We Can pledge and I, I have pledged to donate 10% of my salary uh, for, for the rest of my life. Um, but, and really that just means a few, you know, cutting out the Starbucks drinks, cutting out a lot of the, the shopping sprees that, that uh, folks go through. Um, more part of that hedonic treadmill. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but so there's the donations, um, but then there's also kind of the career and, and what you're doing with the bulk of your time, which brings me to kind of a, a nonprofit um, that I would love to point people toward called 80,000 Hours. 80,000 Hours is a, um, a group that's trying to help people direct them towards effective charities. 80,000 Hours is about the amount of hours that you spend in your career. Um, and so they're looking at how can we place people into positions where if you look at replaceability, uh, they, if someone did replace them, they would be replaced with someone who, for instance, is a little bit less effective or um, X, Y, or Z. So it doesn't necessarily, when someone says I'm an effective altruist, they might not be, they might not have signed the giving what we can pledge. It, it is not required to, to have, be a card carrying member of the effective altruism movement. Um, but they, they kind of think in this um, more utilitarian way, um, kind of balancing um, uh, and maximizing, maximizing the good. So um, just because you are not necessarily donating to effective charities does not mean that you might not be an effective altruist. Yeah. And did you ever have like kind of one of those moments where you just felt like, oh my God, like this was great. Like just giving to this particular thing or doing this particular job just literally made me feel like, oh my, like this was just amazing or I felt so important in that moment. Oh, I, I get a high when I click the donate button. I mean, I, <laughs> clicking the donate button is definitely uh, one of those weird, weird uh, moments that um, I, I just, I love. So yeah, there's, there's definitely some, some moments uh, within, within my time in effective altruism that uh, I, I just get so happy, so happy and so excited for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I noticed uh, it kind of goes back. Uh, we talk about this sometimes in the show opportunity cost, right? So for example, a lot of people will spend their time doing things that don't necessarily serve them or their fellow man. And uh, I don't know, just as an example, we were talking about this before, uh, average American watches like six plus hours of television, right? Uh, something like that. And what, what else could six you be doing? hours of television a week? <laughs> good one. That's a good question. <laughs> it might even be a day. I think it's a day. Yeah, I think it might it's be a day. day. Is it a day? Is that during COVID or is that normally? I think normally. Yeah. I mean, your, your screen time is something like 12 hours a day. Not 12, I'm sorry. Like 12 hours like every couple of days, something like that. Like we, need a, we, need, we need a guy. Yeah, we need stats. I, I can't do this off the top of my head. I'm trying my best. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe, oh, wow, that's insane. Yeah. Uh, wow, 12. Yeah, I guess. Depending on, on on your job, I can definitely see see twelve hours a day. It's just it, and I. So well, Alan said six. Alan said six. I'm saying six. twelve for yeah for phone for time. screen time. Yeah, right, for screen right. time. Yeah, screen yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm probably wrong. Just by the way, just take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I'm most likely wrong. <laughs> so well, no, I'm thinking just how right you probably are. <laughs> yeah, and and so the thing is, uh, the amount of time that the average person spends doing that stuff. The, the question the begs the question, what else could you do with that time, right? And uh, we all have 24 hours in the day, but the choice of how to spend that time and how to allocate certain like resources, mental resources, emotional resources, right. um, physical ones, right? It, it's a very important thing. And I think, for example, um, being like a minimalist, right? I mean, I think that contributes or that's related to that kind of thinking. Like, do, do you really need uh, to spend time um, or do you really need to buy all this stuff on, on Amazon or do you need to feel that uh, dopamine rush um, from um, scrolling through the Facebook news feed or Instagram or, or Twitter? Right. Uh, although those are cool things, I'm not saying not to do that, but there's so much time that we could carve out and do something with that could be helpful to other people or to oh, ourselves even so yeah i i definitely think the world would probably be a, a better place if we all spent a little bit less time on social media platforms for sure the uh the way that that even sometimes on social media um you know people can eat their own and uh it, it's just yeah oh god social media i i use social media i mean i am definitely an avid user of it uh mm. but mostly to try and uh, kind of further the cause. Um, so uh, I, you know, I'll post about my charitable donations and it's really, really exciting when people message me and say, oh, I hadn't heard of that charity. I'm, you know, I'm checking it out or, oh, because of you, I've, you know, started donating monthly to, you know, animal equality, for instance, one of the groups that I donate to. Um, and it just, it makes my heart swell for sure. So there's good uses of social media, but, there are a ton of downsides to it, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I kind of wish that, like, when we're younger, like, kind of, I mean, I'm sure most of the time I hope parents do this, but, like, I think for a lot of us, we get stuck in, like, that short-term thinking and short-term gratification. Because, like, obviously, it's gratifying to scroll through your Twitter feed or, like, to watch TV unquestionably, and it's always going to be so. But I think, like, um, and I just kind of, I guess I'm going to go back to this. So a few weeks ago, we had Massimo Piliucci on. And so Massimo's a Stoic philosopher and kind of part of our How to Live a Good Life 
life series. And so the way he kind of presented it was like, look, man, at the end of the day, you're going to have to be the one on your deathbed. And on your deathbed, you're going to have to kind of have a reckoning of your life and ask yourself whether or not I lived a good life. So in kind of his understanding of the world or his philosophy, the belief is that or rather not to believe, let me say this. The question would be, would you rather be happier knowing that let's say you pursued a lot of sort of, you know, hedonic pleasure, that kind of you spend most of your life doing a bunch of things that in the moment made you happy? Or would you be happy knowing that you tried your best to be a good person, right? Sort of what does it mean to be fulfilled? What does it mean to be fulfilled and what does it mean to have had to have lived a good life. Right. And, so, right. and so the way we kind of sort of, um, I guess, unfortunately, I don't, I mean, may, I don't want to make any assumptions, but the way I at least see it, I might be wrong. But for the most part, our society doesn't really focus too much on what it means to live a good life or how does one actually have a good death? Because I mean, the answer to that, as the Stoics would say, is to literally have a good life. Like the only way for you to die well is to have known that you have lived well. That's mm. so beautiful. And that's actually incredibly timely. You know, as, as we, uh, are in this time of Corona. Uh, I hope that it's giving people more of a chance to really dwell and think actively about what, what does a good life um, mean for me? Does it mean I'm spending quality time with my, my family? Does it mean I'm reading more? Does it mean, you know, X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. um, I, I work on plant-based nutrition initiatives now. And it's interesting that you say, you know, about the uh, leading a good quality life. Indeed, you know, we as humans have really never lived longer uh, ever in, in the past. Um, but we're now at this point of with the chronic diseases that Americans have, we are living longer, but we are, our quality of life is, is dramatically reduced as time goes on. Um, whether we're uh, suffering from type 2 diabetes and have to, you know, get our fingers and toes and feet amputated, um, whether we're on 20 medications, um, some to raise your blood pressure, others to lower your blood pressure. I mean, there's, there's just a, a lot that's um, problematic in our, our healthcare system. And a lot of that kind of dives into our, our food supply and uh, our food policies. Um, but indeed, we're, we're not living that quality end of life. Um, uh, and sadly, you know, now the, the age of when people start being prescribed their diabetes medication, their heart disease medicine, um, that, that number is just coming down and down. Um, so it's a really, it's, I think it's a really good time to think like what does a leading a quality life mean? Um, and to me, it definitely means eating a healthier diet. Um, I, I started eating plant-based uh, about 10 years ago. And when I did, um, my eczema actually went away. Uh, I didn't, if you had told me growing up, oh, Rachel, if you just change what you eat, you'll you'd get rid of your eczema. I would have done it like that <laughs> um, because I would wake up in the middle of the night, scratching my arms, scratching my legs. It was horrible. It was horrible. Um, and it, I had no idea it had anything to do with the food I was eating. And then uh, I switched the food and haven't had eczema in 10 years. And I tell you, whew. I am so, so, so much happier. Uh, talk about quality of life for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, could, I could relate to that on a different level. Um, so I used to be, well, depends where I could start the story, but I guess I'll start here. So I used to be uh, 300 pounds once upon a time. Wow. Um, then took a while, but I, I did end up getting it down and through changing, uh, definitely changing my diet. I definitely go to the gym too, but uh, Diet definitely helped um, 
I reduced the amount of sugar intake, carb intake, um, more uh, fats. Uh, so not I didn't go. I did vegan for like a month. Uh, that was that was a cool experience, but uh, it's not it's not legit going vegan, right? So yeah, but. Uh, yeah, and what I noticed is, so I had inf inflammation issues. I had crazy headaches all the time. Mm. And um, same thing, if somebody had told me when I was younger, hey, if you, you, know, you want this inflammation to go away, you want to stop having headaches, you want to feel normal, be able to think clearly, you just have to reduce the amount of sugar intake, right. uh, carbs, and you'll, your inflammation will go down. Uh, there were other factors as well, and I did other things. Sauna. Uh, cold shock, drink this, eat that, have this right. juice, I mean, that juice. Hey, yeah. We try everything when we are, when we are struggling by all means, I, I tried probably 20 different creams as I was going up, growing up. So I yeah. feel you try anything you can. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, diet is, is super important. There's, there's this, uh, uh, focus. We have a huge focus of uh, preventative medicine right. in uh, the U S but not enough on functional medicine. Mm -hmm. right? Like these, these doctors, like uh, one person I could think of uh, is a pretty famous doctor, uh, Mark Hyman. Mm -hmm. He wrote this book called the ultra mind solution. And uh, he learned, he, he used a style of thinking of, I don't think he invented this, but there's a style of thinking in medicine called systems thinking. So a lot of doctors are specialized in, uh, in one area or another. One doctor is a cardiologist, one is a podiatrist, one is this, a gastroenterologist, whatever. Uh, functional medicine or a functional doctor, if I'm saying that correctly, <laughs> uh, looks at the whole body, uh, looks at the body as a whole right. and how everything kind of um, works together, right. long story short. Mm -hmm. So they look at the underlying causes of, of whatever issue it is that you're having. And a lot of these doctors will point to uh, remedies like uh, diet in order to treat your issues, as opposed to giving you that um, <clears throat> that uh, blood pressure medication or diabetes medication. Maybe they're, they'll suggest a diet to you that can totally reverse those symptoms. Or both. Or both. Right. Yeah. But uh, a lot of times you'll see that. A lot of times the, they, they target the root cause of, of the issue. Yeah. And in New York, we actually have a, a clinic, a lifestyle medicine clinic uh, called, it's under, run by Dr. Michelle McMacken, and it's called the Plant-Based Lifestyle Medicine Program. And it's at the oldest hospital in the country, and it started just last January, and we expected it to have between 100 and 200 patients, and we actually have about 800 people on the waiting list. Um, and so people, people are excited to, to kind of reverse their diseases. Disease reversal is not a super common phrase in the medical world, but indeed, I mean, type 2 diabetes, it's the food. Heart disease, it's the food. Um, there's just, uh, there's a lot that, that can be done just by looking at, at what we're putting into our body. Absolutely. And like, so I'm a proponent of Medicare for all, but I also think that it's like pretty much only part of the solution. A lot of what we don't talk about is that like the reason why healthcare in this country is so expensive. It's not, obviously the prices are definitely jacked up. That's unquestionable. But and so, but, but the point is also on top of that, it's like, there's not people and myself included, by the way. So a lot of us aren't sort of health literate. Like we just don't know outside of like, obviously eat your vegetables, eat fruits, et cetera. We don't really understand or know about the effects that kind of different foods put into or have on our bodies. 
And I mean, to an extent, it makes sense because you're not like quick, right? You don't, you, you're not going to necessarily eat one donut and then, oh my God, like, you know, you're going to okay. have, right. So right, it's right. like, if, if we're talking, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then it's like, so unfortunately what happens is because people, it's just like with smoking a cigarette, when people don't see the effects, what happens is, what happens is over the long term and then the aggregate, it becomes a bit, maybe not too late, but then that's when all of the issues start. So, I mean, I think that there has to be a point where um, not only do we see that obviously that we can afford healthy foods, which I hope for the most part is possible for most people, but then on top of that, that we understand why healthy foods are necessary as opposed to the more unhealthy ones. Right, right. And there's also, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of relearning that needs to happen because I think when you think of healthy food, um, you know, if you think of a healthy plant-based diet, a healthy plant-based diet can be the cheapest diet out there. It can be the rice, beans, and vegetables. Um, and when you kind of start talking about frozen vegetables, you get even cheaper. Um, so it's it's really, it is that rejiggering what we think it is because it's not necessarily you eating at Whole Foods. Um, it's it, it does not need to be the, you know, all organic products, for instance. Uh, it can indeed just be that legume, that whole grain, those fruits, those vegetables, um, and you've got yourself a good meal that, that is good for you, good for the planet, and, you know, full circle, good for animals. Yeah, and there's, a, there's depending on where you live, this is not everywhere, but so, some people have a farmer's market near them. Mm -hmm. So if you can't go to places like Whole Foods, go to your local farmer's market and get fresh grown foods. You don't have to worry about, I mean, uh, I don't know for a fact, but you don't necessarily have to worry about certain pesticides or certain things being on on the foods the way you do with store-bought stuff. Right, right. There's yeah. a, there's a Dr. Michael Greger, he wrote a book called How Not to Die. Uh, he <laughs> has the um, Daily Dozen, um, and it's an app of, you know, it's a basic list of foods that you should be trying to eat a little bit of every day. Um, and that, that just reminds me of looking at the dirty dozen and seeing, uh, you know, which foods you should try and get organic if you can, but there are, are definitely a boatload of foods that also, it, it does not, um, matter a, a, a ton, ton, whether you get them organic or not. And then the other thing I think is that we also have to get much better at treating depression because a lot of times when people either consume, let's say, not so healthy food or they overconsume food, it's because they're using it as a coping mechanism. Right. That's right. And then so sometimes like people, do, so sometimes unfortunately what happens is doctors get, or kind of nutritionists get a little bit kind of hubris and they kind of become lecturers because um, they really don't understand that what's really underlying the consumption outside of obviously ignorance, which a lot of times the case too. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's depression. It's because for kind of people who are struggling with that kind of myopic thinking of, you know, well, my life is sort of bad and I have all of these different problems. I mean, of course they're going to go for short-term gratification. It's like anybody who's suffering is going to go for any sort of inch, any sort of semblance of help right whether it's like food or smoking cigarettes or whatever it is so the idea is i think it has to go hand in hand when we talk about preventative medicine in terms of prevent well what's up you got something to say no no go for it i'm gonna say that okay so when it comes to preventative medicine it also go, has to go hand in hand with kind of better mental health care and information kind of widespread information go ahead. i gotta say the whole you know i agree with you yeah you're kind of like eating to fill a void or something right. yeah so I'll say that when this whole COVID thing started and, uh, and of course gyms were closed, but I, you know, that was like a part of my daily habit and I had this kind of routine, all that foods I would eat, all that. So, uh, during this whole thing, I've packed on a few pounds actually, but 
in the beginning, it was glorious. I was just like, okay, no, 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 just, it's fine. You could get away with eating this, that, that, and the other. But then it did start to feel like um, as time went on and I had more, all this free time, right. I started kind of to do that whole eating to fill a void thing. Right. Even with all this meta uh, cognitive awareness of like what's <laughs> going on and like knowing like how your mind works and all that, right. still could fall for it. I finally did, I noticed that about what was going on, right? So I started to kind of pull myself out of it. I'm back to like eating normal and all that. But uh, I, I do have to say there are certain situations that even even if you had a routine, if your routine was disrupted, anything can happen, right? And I would also even say that context is super important. So sometimes you can even have all of the information and even the best sort of mental health treatment. And if the person is really struggling in their lives, like a pandemic, right, you're going to have circumstances that make it more likely that a person is going to want to overeat or indulge in whatever else that may be kind of in the short term harmful. So, I mean, the idea is that there's so many different factors, right? Again, so I love obviously Medicare for all, but I think that it's only like a part of the system that needs to change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see what our election brings to see if we're going to get anywhere closer to a, a, a better, better healthcare system. It will be fascinating. Yeah. Well, is Eric going to be running for mayor? I was listening to a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you know, I was listening to this podcast, uh, History Hyenas. He was just like yeah. recently, I guess. Yeah. And I was surprised that he was even on there because that's like, that's, I don't know. It's like... It's one that I usually listen to. So I was like, oh, cool. President of Brooklyn. Cool. Yeah, I actually, I think when they, when he got on, I think they were like, yeah, I think you're our first politician or something. So yeah. I don't think they have a ton of political guests. Um, uh, and some of the jokes they said, yeah, for sure. Make sure make you understand <laughs> yeah. political deaths. Uh, yes, indeed. He, um, he is, uh, has some political aspirations. Um, and and might be running for mayor of New York. He is still. Figuring He's got my vote, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. One of the things they said on the podcast, which was hilarious to me, is uh, the one of the comedians, uh, Chris DeStefano. He's like, my family, uh, they're all Republicans, but I think you're going to be the first Democrat we're going to vote for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a good guy. I really I've enjoyed. I've worked for him for the past two years, and uh, he he's just got a really. A good, a good eye, very good leadership, um, and he's willing to ask some of those tough questions. Uh, he's really one of the first politicians to stand against the the meat industry in in such a vocal way, like he has. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride with him. It's been fun, so um, I'm excited to see where where life takes him as well. And I guess one of our final questions before we wrap up, because I am super curious, what does a deputy strategist do? What's your day to day like at work? <laughs> so I don't have a day to day like uh, a schedule that I, I go through each day and kind of repeat. That's uh, not not my stuff. So I'd say I mean, we can even look in the last 24 hours. Um, it's a Sunday, so the last 24 hours I am typically off, but this weekend was not as such. Uh, so we uh, hosted a press conference around um, uh, around children and the, some of their symptoms with COVID, um, and so helping kind of bring in some of the lifestyle medicine folks into that conversation. Um, uh, but I'd say this week was... Um, uh, definitely looking at how we can expand our Bellevue programs. So our Bellevue program, uh, you know, has the that 800 person waiting list. 
And if we look at um, sort of the, the communities that are most hard hit with corona, it is indeed communities of color. Uh, communities of color are most hard hit with diabetes, heart disease, um, et cetera. Um, and so trying to bring lifestyle medicine into that conversation um, mm. is, is one that is just so needed. Um, and then also, I mean, looking at, uh, at sort of from um, outside of the health realm, uh, looking at what sort of animal agriculture has done to our environment, um, the, the pollution and the, uh, the carbon, carbon emissions that come from it. Um, so we've looked at that. Uh, I've definitely uh, tried to bring that lens um, because that is some of my previous work. Um, so a, a deputy strategist really does whatever Eric needs to get done. Um, but a lot of it focuses on his passion area, which is plant-based nutrition um, and kind of moving that agenda forward, that, that lifestyle medicine conversation forward. Yeah, awesome. And yeah. so to, to wrap up, so I guess my final question would be um, in terms of a philosophy of life, right? let's say somebody who's never heard of effective altruism kind of came up to you and they were looking and sort of searching through different philosophies and wondering how they ought to live. How would you advocate for it? What would you tell them the benefits would be? Yeah, uh, it really depends on kind of their own backstory. I, I love kind of approaching each person differently. So, um, you know, just like how if an environmentalist comes to me and says, hey, what is this vegetarianism thing that you talk about? Um, I probably would not talk about the animal aspect or the health aspect. I would approach them with the environmental. So, um, you know, it really depends on what their backstory has been. If, if they have depression, um, uh, I would definitely speak about that as, as that might be common ground for us. I've also, um, you know, I've been sober for 10 years. So, um, you know, it, it kind of really depends on what that, that person's previous history has been. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd say uh, look into um, maximizing your impact. Uh, do you want to have a legacy of, of, um, of one of greatest impacts? Because we all have legacies and we all have impacts. Um, but whether or not it is kind of your fullest potential um, is is how effective altruism might be able to guide you. Um, so uh, I'd probably start with that and go from there. I love that. Yeah. All right, Alan, final questions before we go? Oh, yeah. If, if we wanted to follow you online, uh, where, where could we follow you? Uh, so Twitter, uh, R underscore Atchison, uh, and uh, Instagram, XVXRachel. So, um, probably in the show notes so yep <laughs> awesome thank you cool. so much for coming on Rachel. this was such an enlightening podcast yeah. i'm so happy to, so happy we can make it work much love Abs absolutely Bye. <laughs> all right wow that was awesome yeah that was such a good show man yep. wow and if you guys want to follow us follow us at seize the moment podcast on facebook and on instagram and at seize underscore podcast on twitter like, subscribe, hit, the, hit bell the bell on YouTube. Yeah. And you can also find us at the O4L online network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us on top on the ST or under the STM podcast section. And so, and of course, kind of one more sort of one plug before we go. Um, so are you, are you stressed that you can't leave the house? Because are you stressed that you can't leave the house to keep up with the routine fighting with chronic conditions such as diabetes and hypertension? Wow. Isn't that like so apt now? Um, so uh, having trouble coming up with healthy ways to feed the family or simply need the support system to set up, to set up, to make your goals a reality. Vera on Verified Nutrition offers a free 15 minute consultation on her website at V-E-R-A-F-I-E-D 
N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com, at VerifiedNutrition.com. And you can read more about her individual journey, her experiences, send her a message, check out her blog page and the services she offers, and make your choice to get verified. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for watching. Look forward to the next episode. See you guys then.